Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today we feature the music from the classic film Jurassic Park, made in 1993. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Okay, folks, this is it. This is the episode of The Baton I've been looking forward to since episode one. Jurassic Park is, and always will be, the score that holds the closest place to my heart of all of John Williams' scores. As you're going to discover in this episode, the music in this film, more than the wondrous and groundbreaking special effects that brought people to the theaters in droves, is what set me on a path that led me to this podcast and this episode. But before I get to talking about Jurassic Park and its impact, I want to welcome David Kay, who is back for the second time as co-host. David's last appearance on the podcast was on the E.T. episode, and now he's back for another monumental collaboration between Steven Spielberg and John Williams. David, great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Jeff. It is really great to be here again. It's been such a joy listening to the podcast, and I'm really grateful to be back. So, David, you returned to the podcast for another great film by Steven Spielberg. And just as he did with E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Spielberg pushed the envelope in terms of what could be done in the movies. So, just when we thought we'd seen it all as a boy and his alien friend fly in the sky with the moon behind them, Spielberg brings us this tale of terrorizing dinosaurs. And what a tale it is. Jurassic Park is an adaptation of Michael Crichton's sci-fi thriller novel about an entrepreneur who brings dinosaurs back to life in order to open a dinosaur zoo slash theme park. He invites paleontologist Alan Grant, botanist Ellie Sattler, and mathematician Ian Malcolm to view the park and hopefully endorse it. After a disgruntled employee's botched attempt to steal the technology and sell it to a competing company, the dinosaurs escape and the characters must stay alive and get off the island. At its heart, it's a cautionary and perhaps somewhat alarmist tale about the danger of technological advancement if it happens in the absence of a consideration for the social impact of that technology. Very interesting point, but of course, most people were there just to see the dinosaurs. (laughs) So in the case of Jurassic Park, the movie, there wasn't going to be much need to hammer out an award-worthy script. As I said, the main objective was to get everyone on the island and bring out the dinosaurs. And they managed to set everything up and show that first dinosaur in less than 25 minutes. And what we see is absolutely amazing. Even now in the 21st century, seeing the computer-generated dinosaurs is still spectacular to see. And the work done with quote-unquote real dinosaurs is mind-blowing because they're not making them look like puppets. And to use the words of the billionaire John Hammond, who plays, who's played so wonderfully by Richard Attenborough, Spielberg spared no expense for this movie, even though at the time, $63 million was a fairly low budget for a blockbuster film. By comparison, Terminator 2 was made for $94 million in 1991. Everyone knew they were working on something special, and it was a big risk for a lot of people. Spielberg had wanted to direct this movie since he had heard about the plot from the author himself, Michael Crichton, before it became a novel. But it took a while to get the screenplay done, and when it was ready, Spielberg had committed to making Schindler's List. 
Universal agreed to finance Schindler's List if Spielberg made Jurassic Park first, thereby assuring the studio would make some money against the box office bomb that they believed Schindler's List would be. And like the millions of people who lined up to watch Jurassic Park on opening weekend in June 93, I was anxious to see what kind of magic Spielberg was going to unleash. My attention was piqued with the opening titles in that distinctive jungle font and that boom of an opening note followed by a male chorus. And one of the listeners of this podcast, Sander Van Deeren, told me that he considers the opening timpani beats as a foreshadowing of the impact tremors the T-Rex footsteps make later in the movie. And I agree with him on that. So Jurassic Park was the debut of the now famous DTS sound, which provided even more depth to the music and really filled the theater when the T-Rex made his first ear-piercing roar. Thanks to that innovative sound design system, the sound mixers and sound effects editors won Oscars for their work on the movie. I watched a helicopter fly across the screen over the ocean, cutting to our main group of characters inside as they headed to this island under mysterious circumstances. Pretty normal setup for giving us a taste of the type of people we'd be watching in the rest of the movie. I wasn't bored, but the movie hadn't taken hold of me just yet. Until this.
As that music exploded from the movie theater speakers in all its DTS glory, it grabbed me from the inside and didn't let go. Now, I so I know I'm sounding like I'm waxing poetic here, but there's no other way to describe what I was feeling in those two minutes. Movie music had never gotten that kind of reaction from me before, and that includes hearing the opening music from Star Wars, the heartbeat thump-thump in Jaws, or any other film score that came before this. And all it did was play over shots of this helicopter arriving at the island and landing on a helipad. It's no surprise that this music had such an effect on you, Jeff. It's such an uplifting cue, and honestly, a somewhat surprising start for a thriller. Like many of Williams' classic heroic themes, this fanfare starts with a perfect fifth, and then almost immediately ups the ante with another perfect fifth, and eventually reaches an octave in a moment of triumph, similar to the Star Wars theme. That's the octave right there. The fanfare seems to represent basically anything positive in the film. That includes the naive enthusiasm of our characters in the beginning, the bravery of Ellie as she prepares to turn the power generators back on, and the ingenuity of Lex as she hacks into the park's computer system to enable the phones and door locks. The fanfare underscores all of those scenes. Oh yeah, that perfect fifth. I've really missed that in John Williams' scores of the late 80s and early 90s. There weren't too many opportunities to write a theme in heroic fashion for movies about a doomed relationship or the Vietnam War. And, you know, it had to be that leap through the octave scale that really resonated with me. It is really powerful. And it still does. I watched Jurassic Park in the theater in 2013 as part of the 20th anniversary when it was presented in 3D. And when this scene came on, I unexpectedly started weeping. It was the first time I was seeing this movie in the theater in 20 years, and the same music exploded out of the speakers, and yet affected me so much more strongly than it did all those years watching on my VHS tape. And yes, I only had this movie on VHS until just very recently. You know, Jeff, as somebody who grew up watching VHSs, I think it's only fitting to watch a movie about prehistoric beings on a prehistoric technology. Anyways... Then we get to the reason everyone bought so many tickets to the movie, the reveal of the dinosaurs. This reveal is where Williams introduces the main theme for the film, a gentle, hymn-like piece that, again, is not the music you'd expect to hear in a thriller.
Now, if we think of Hammond and the entire Jurassic Park project as an effort to quote-unquote play God, as Jeff Goldblum's character suggests, then we can find a few allusions the main theme makes to religious music. First, the theme itself relies heavily on a four-to-one chord progression. When this progression comes at the end of a piece of music, it is known as a plagal cadence, but often referred to as the amen cadence, as it is frequently used to end church music. See if this sounds familiar. So that's the amen cadence, as you might hear at the end of a piece of church music. Now I want to play it for you in the context of the Jurassic Park theme. And in this case, I'm actually going to start on that one chord and then start alternating between four and one. Second, you'll hear in a moment the theme includes a heavenly choir in another allusion to religious music. Note that the major reprise at the end of the score and film, the choir is absent, perhaps to suggest that our characters have learned better than to try to play God. That reprise also starts with a delicate piano solo rather than a full-blown orchestra, again indicating that our characters have somewhat lowered their epic ambitions. By the way, if the rhythm of that opening melodic line in the main theme sounds familiar, I'm now talking about this line. It's because Williams teased it during the fanfare presentation. So remember this ostinato during the fanfare. So if you take that ostinato again, compare that to the rhythm of the main theme, and you'll notice that they're similar. So this is Williams' way of, of kind of foreshadowing what's to come on the island. And the last thing I'll say about this theme is that the concert version begins with a really cold and somber horn call, which then transforms into a more lush and beautiful piece that we all know. I see this horn call as representing the use of a mundane, lifeless piece of nature, an uh, amber rock, to create this incredible world. It's really a musical representation of life finding a way, if you will. Wow, that is so much to interpret from this music. Of course, that's easy to do all these years later, but I'm sure many people were trying to make these connections in 1993. So let's go back to our introduction to those dinosaurs. 
Williams doesn't let up as we get a view of a herd of dinosaurs by a lake, presenting another theme that seems to showcase the majesty of this accomplishment. Not only the accomplishment by John Hammond to bring dinosaurs to life, but I think also the accomplishment of Dennis Buren and his visual effects team to put real-life dinosaurs in the movies, not some cheap stop-motion ones from the movies of the 1940s. Sit back and enjoy the orchestral build-up to the reveal of even more dinosaurs, again, backed up by a choir. When this music was being recorded, Spielberg was in Poland filming Schindler's List, and it was, I believe, the first time he had not been able to be in the studio during the recording of the score for one of his films. He was able to hear it on cassette tape, which, of course, is not the same as hearing it live and watching the film with it. The main theme isn't the only religious illusion that Williams makes in the score. Another is a use of the Dies Irae, a song from the Catholic Requiem Mass. The clip we're about to play features the first four pitches of Dies Irae, so listen for these notes. This is the first moment it appears in the score as Ellie and Muldoon arrive at the T-Rex paddock to search for any survivors. As your listeners will know, Williams had used this theme before. In Jurassic Park, as in many other applications, Williams uses the theme to highlight the danger and death surrounding our characters. But I think there's another reason Williams chose to use it in this score, and to understand this requires a brief history of the Dies Irae. Dies Irae was originally a poem written in the 13th century that describes the Day of Judgment, when, according to Christian teachings, God is supposed to determine who goes to heaven and who is punished for eternity in hell. 
It was set to music in the 14th century, which is where these infamous and infinitely quoted pitches come from. And it's really the first eight pitches of the theme which go... Initially, due to its use in the Requiem Mass, Diasiro was only heard in strictly religious contexts. But as composers began to use it in their pieces to represent concepts that had non-religious connotations, the, the theme started to take on a new meaning. Indeed, when Hector Berlioz used Diasiro in his Symphonie Fantastique piece in 1830 to underscore a witch's Sabbath, which is arguably the first modern variation of the Diasiro, Many critics panned it for making a mockery of a serious and somber topic. Today, you can hear Diasiri in decidedly non-religious contexts, including The Nightmare Before Christmas, Star Wars, and even Home Alone a few years earlier, just to name a few. So maybe Williams' use of the Diasiri was intended to draw a parallel between the secularization of this musical theme and the secularization of the creation of life. Remember the quote that the great Jeff Goldblum says in the movie, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man, man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. And that's followed by the great comeback by Laura Dern, dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth. I love that line. So I had never noticed Dies Irae in Jurassic Park before, and I agree that it's very apropos for a movie in which death is all around. I guess because in Jurassic Park, as we heard, it's played at a faster tempo than it was played in previous movies like Close Encounters. It just sounded like a really cool ostinato to me for the strings and woodwinds, but now it takes on a deeper meaning. Yeah, and that Laura Dern line is definitely one of the the best lines in the movie. But yeah, you know, I agree, Jeff. Later in his career, Williams got very good at camouflaging the DSRA almost to a point beyond recognition. Those four to eight pitches, intentional or not, would later show up in the scores to Sleepers, Amistad, AI Artificial Intelligence, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, and War of the Worlds. In these later films, the theme becomes much more camouflaged and difficult to notice. In Williams' earlier scores that used DSRA, like Star Wars or Close Encounters, the theme was much easier to pick out. Jurassic Park, in my view, stands as an interesting middle ground between Williams' past and future DSRA quotes. Its initial usage of the DSRA is relatively straightforward, like Williams' pre-Jurassic Park references to the tune. But its later usages in the score are camouflaged, deconstructed, and difficult to recognize, which are far more characteristic of his post-Jurassic Park references to the theme. Consider this variation from later in the score, which is so scattered and buried underneath the orchestra, it might not have even been intentional. So listen to the four trombone hits. And in case you missed it, I'm, I'm referring to the part that goes... Again, it is completely scattered and buried underneath all sorts of orchestral happenings. So uh, it's possible it wasn't even intentional, but it's there nonetheless. This is just one of the ways in which Jurassic Park represents a turning point for Williams' musical style, and we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, these are very good points, David. I can see how Williams will use these themes in the Star Wars prequels, but putting it in movies like Amistad and 
AI is making me excited to hear those in the scores and maybe understand the reasons behind it. So I'm excited to get to those scores later on. So one of the scenes I have always enjoyed watching in Jurassic Park is Dennis's theft of the dinosaur embryos. Of course, this is what sets the chaos to follow in motion, since he turns off the electrified fences keeping the T-Rex and Velociraptors away from human interaction. So I mentioned in the JFK episode that the conspirators theme from that movie was used in Jurassic Park, and it was used in this scene. What sets it apart from what we heard in JFK is the heavier use of synthesizers for the percussion parts, one of the few cues in Jurassic Park that rely so heavily on electronic music. The horns, as they do in JFK, are here to provide that sense of danger and villainy with a descending note melody. And the Sakuhachi flute here is a nice touch as Dennis picks out the frozen vials. Gives it a tribal, earthy feel. This cue is a great representation of how technological progress, without the right safeguards, can amplify human recklessness. You've got synthesizers, which to me almost sound like somebody clacking away at a computer keyboard, representing technology and propelling the piece forward, and providing a motor to fuel the more human failings, which are represented by the other instruments. Williams also uses synthesized choir in key moments of the score, often using it to augment the natural choir. For instance, when we see raptors being hatched. This combination represents the combination of the dinosaur's natural biology with the technology that enabled them to be resurrected.
And one more thing about Williams' use of synthesizers. While Williams was not afraid to use them in his earlier decades, during the 90s, integrating synths with orchestra became a more regular element of his style and of broader trends in music and film. During this decade, many of his scores feature moments with very prominent synthesizers, in addition to subtle uses meant to refine his more traditional symphonic sound. I have found that to be true even back in the late 1980s, dating back to 1986's Space Camp. We all heralded Williams' refusal to use electronic instruments in Star Wars, but in almost every film since then, there has been some element of electronic music present. And there's nothing wrong with that, because as we've seen even in Jurassic Park, sometimes there is a purpose other than just enhancing the sound of a particular instrument. I agree, Jeff. I think Williams uses synthesizers a lot more than many people give him credit for, and I think he's used them over the course of his career in in really interesting ways. Anyways, let's talk more about the thematic material composed for the film. There is a more menacing theme for the dinosaurs than the two we heard earlier. I call it the dangerous dinosaur theme. This short motif is first heard in the opening title. It's largely absent in the beginning of the film, but once the experience starts to fall apart for our characters, Williams relies on it more heavily. Here it is as raptors try to eat the children in the kitchen near the end of the film. With just four notes, it's a very primal, simple theme. I view it in some ways as a counter to the main theme for two main reasons. First, it shares that opening half-step interval with the main theme, but instead of going down a half-step, it goes up a half-step. So again, here's the main theme. So you've got that half-step interval right there. So instead of going down, the dangerous dino theme goes up a half-step. The second reason I view this as a counter of the main theme is because of that last interval. It's incredibly dissonant. And that interval is called a tritone. It's an interval that throughout history has often been labeled as the devil's interval, which again contrasts the dangerous dino theme against the heavenly godly sounds of the main theme. The dangerous dino theme gets a wonderful variation at the very end of the end credits. As the relaxing notes of the main theme twinkle away, we get a very ominous rendition of the dangerous dino theme, reminding listeners of the dangers that are still roaming on the island and perfectly setting us up for a sequel, or five. It's basically a musical cliffhanger.
But the theme's real time to shine is during the final action sequence of the film. I view the film's finale sequence as basically a theme and variation on the Dangerous Dino theme. This sequence also highlights a similarity that the theme has with a motif written by Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich to represent himself. Check out Shostakovich's use of the theme in the final movement of his 10th symphony. Now compare that to William's use of the Dangerous Dino theme in Jurassic Park. I think it's more than just a passing similarity. Anyways, for the climax of the film when, spoiler alert, the T-Rex arrives out of nowhere to eat the raptors right as they are about to destroy our human characters, Williams wrote an incredibly aggressive variation on the Dangerous Dino theme. But Spielberg in the end replaced this with a tracked version of the fanfare. I personally think this was a bad decision. The use of the fanfare makes it sound like the T-Rex is the hero of the film, when in reality, she's just operating on the same instinct as the raptors who are threatening our human characters, rather than out of some desire to spare the humans. In other words, the use of the fanfare creates a sense of false heroism at the expense of the chaos of William's original score, a chaos that seems, frankly, more core to Jurassic Park's message. Spielberg is sometimes criticized for being overly sentimental in his film endings, and while I don't always agree with that criticism, in this specific case, I think this musical decision is one instance where I think it's a fair point. Well, David, I'm of two minds about the music for the final T-Rex attack, but that's mostly because I'm of two minds about the ending. So during filming, Spielberg decided to change the ending from Grant using machines to trap the raptors to a scene in which the T-Rex comes out of nowhere to kill the raptors and allow the humans to escape. It's a very Hollywood ending, and I have always been manipulated emotionally to view the T-Rex as the hero, as you mentioned. And I think the original music John Williams wrote would have been better to highlight the battle between the raptors and the T-Rex because the music really is focused on them. I don't know if Spielberg consulted with Williams on the change, but it does shift the emotion of the scene greatly, as you said. Anyways, there's another minor motif associated with the dinosaurs during this sequence, and that's the pounding timpani representing the footsteps of the raptors. This music plays as we get a close-up on the raptors' feet as they chase the children around the kitchen. And you know, funnily enough, this motif was foreshadowed by none other than John Hammond. Earlier in the film, after watching a clip of the animated Mr. DNA, he notes that the animation score is temporary and describes how the replacement score will represent the plotting dinosaurs. And now we can make a baby dinosaur. This score is only temporary. 
It all has very dramatic music, of course. Boom, boom, boom. Well, a march or something hadn't been written yet. And then, of course, the tour moves on. Yeah, it's amazing that you picked up on that, David. I had actually wondered if Williams was going to make a reference to that. And I think he figured while he was watching that scene, he said, I've got to reference some boom, 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 boom. And even though the music is for Brontosaurus in the animated film, not the raptors that are in the actual scene, he seemed to think that the raptors was the best place to put it. I think so. I think the the boom, boom would not have made much sense during the gentle hymn-like a main theme in that beginning scene. No, not at all. I listen to the cue titled The Raptor Attack on the soundtrack often, mostly because it makes great use of the tuba, here playing that dangerous dino theme you described. This music was supposed to play when Lex and Tim first see the raptor approaching them in the dining hall, but it was not used in the final cut. And then Ellie makes an offhanded comment about trapping one of the raptors in the shed, unless they figure out how to open doors. The score returns in the next shot when one of the raptors opens the door to the kitchen where Tim and Lex are hiding. We hear a male choir here, and I think, David, to go back to your theory that the choir suggests heavenly intervention, the choir here is suggesting that the raptors have been, quote, touched by God and evolved a bit to get the upper hand for a moment. I love the tuba here, and I think it's playing another variation on that dangerous dino theme. And speaking of action music, I mentioned earlier how Jurassic Park is, in many ways, a turning point for Williams' musical style. Nowhere is that more true than in the action scoring. If I had to draw a dividing line somewhere in Williams' career, and I'll acknowledge that, of course, that's a somewhat blunt and overly simplistic thing to do, but if I had to do it, I would say that Jurassic Park is the first modern Williams action score. This is for a few reasons. The action music in Jurassic Park relies a lot on existing themes, rather than creating new melodies for each sequence. Compare any action cue from Jurassic Park to, say, the Lost Boys chase from Hook just a few years earlier, or even the TIE Fighter attack from Star Wars. Second, the most interesting parts of the action cues in Jurassic Park are rhythmic, not melodic, and the score uses a lot of John Williams' action music trademarks, including unpredictable trombone hits, 
and dissonant high trumpet notes that soar above the rest of the orchestra. It also features many uses of what is sometimes referred to as bumts. That's just an orchestral flourish that usually entails a low drum hit, usually a timpani or a bass drum, followed immediately by a crash cymbal. While Williams started using this technique at least as far back as the 70s, it became much more prominent in his more recent scores. Oh, David, I love the boom. To s- it's one of my favorite parts of his, one of his favorite techniques. And Star Wars was the first time he used it. And every action movie, I think, since has had it in some way, shape or form. But he definitely does use it a lot more in his action movies after Jurassic Park, like Minority Report and Harry Potter. Though we've been talking a lot about the action music in Jurassic Park, there are a few quieter moments that are just as good. We've already talked about the scene during the hatching of the baby raptor, but there's also a necessary scene involving a brachiosaurus having some fun with Alan and the kids in the morning after the big T-Rex attack. So we had just gone through nearly 15 minutes of non-stop intense action involving that T-Rex, and every good adventure movie needs a scene or two to give us a chance to breathe and maybe even laugh a little. And that's what this scene does, especially at the end when the Brachiosaurus sneezes a gallon of mucus onto Lex. The music isn't too comical, but it does sound like something the great composer Max Steiner might have written for a big dinosaur action movie in the 1940s. I completely agree, Jeff. To me, this music sounds like a romance from the 1940s meets Close Encounters of the Third Kind meets Tom and Jerry. That might sound like an odd combination, but honestly, it works. It's a gorgeous cue, and in fact, in some ways, I think it's a more interesting listen than the main theme. For fans of it, I'd recommend the concert version, which is available on the Williams on Williams album, I believe uh, with the Boston Pops. 
yeah, I don't have that CD. I'm going to have to listen to that because I've never heard a concert version of this. It's probably pretty beautiful. So, you know, David, for all the amazing techniques and melodic trickery that Williams put into the score for Jurassic Park, it's so amazing that the score was denied an Oscar nomination for original score. If you go to the John Williams Fan Network's forums, and you'll see some rants about this Academy snub sprinkled out every time Jurassic Park is mentioned. Now, I tend to agree with this snub, though the five nominated scores are all pretty darn good, particularly that other Williams score that he wrote in 1993, which was Schindler's List. Yeah, Jurassic Park joins the ranks of other iconic scores like Psycho or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly to have never even been nominated for an Oscar for music. Schindler's List is such a gorgeous and important score that perhaps it overshadowed Williams' other effort that year. Who knows, though, if Williams had been double-nominated, it's possible that the pro-Williams vote would have been split between the two scores, and he wouldn't have won the prize at all that year, as is rumored to have happened in 2006. Well, I think Schindler's List would have been viewed in the same way Star Wars was at the Oscars. Yes, he was also nominated that year for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but there was no way Star Wars was losing. So I have a theory, and again, it's just a theory, not backed up by any evidence, but I do wonder if, in the case of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, that Universal Pictures, the studio behind both movies, decided to put out those for-your-consideration ads in certain ways for both movies to make sure they never competed with each other. Now, it's only a theory, but I think Universal decided to push harder for Schindler's List score for the Oscars over Jurassic Park. And I think that might have also been true for Michael Kahn, who edited both films. I think Jurassic Park's editing is superb, but it also did not get an Oscar nomination. So that kind of furthers along my little theory here. Again, take what you will from it. It's only a theory. But I do agree with you that there might have been some vote splitting back in 2006 between Munich and Memoirs of a Geisha. But that's a sore point for me, David. So it's best not to talk about that further. So even though Jurassic Park score did not get an Oscar nomination, the soundtrack was among the nominees for Best Soundtrack at the Grammys. Due to the different calendar year for Grammy consideration, Jurassic Park was nominated against the soundtrack for 1992's Aladdin, which won the Grammy. But even if it didn't win a lot of awards, Jurassic Park score had a profound effect on me in 1993. So as the end credits flashed on the screen and displayed music by John Williams, I took it on myself to find out more about this guy who could write in so many musical voices for one film and make them all sound superb. So imagine my shock when I found out he was responsible for the music from almost all of my favorite movies. So after that, I couldn't stop noticing the score in a movie. About three weeks later, I was watching the Tom Cruise movie The Firm, and I instantly noticed that the entire score is being played on piano. Now that's something I don't think I would have paid attention to before Jurassic Park opened my ears to a new aspect of the movies. So after that, I went through my VHS collection. Yes, I still have VHSs. It was 1993, <laughs> which was somewhat small at the time. But I watched all those older movies that featured John Williams scores. You know, like the Star Wars trilogy, of course, and Jaws, as well as E.T. and even Home Alone. And it felt like I was watching those movies for the first time. I couldn't believe how little I had paid attention to the role music played in the movie, particularly 
how John Williams was using music to enhance a movie. I mean, Jaws was even scarier now, and Darth Vader seemed to have a more ominous presence every time he walked into a room and his music played. And so this love of movie music would intensify after watching Schindler's List in December 1993. And it was that movie that made me an official John Williams fan for life. I can totally relate to that, Jeff. Jurassic Park was one of the first film scores that I listened to outside of the film itself. And it really helped solidify my love, not just of film music, but of music in general. Particularly that Journey to the Island cue, which is just breathtaking. And of course, Schindler's List is absolutely gorgeous and so heartbreaking. It's so interesting that Williams wrote both in such close proximity to each other. Those two scores could not be further apart stylistically. A lot of listeners have written to me with similar stories of becoming John Williams fans after watching Jurassic Park. So it's amazing how much that movie has touched a lot of people. And, I mean, that's just another reason why this score deserved an Oscar nomination. It created an entire generation of new John Williams fans in the same way Star Wars did 16 years earlier. The legacy was cemented from the moment those first dinosaurs appeared on screen. I mean, this this was amazing. It looked like they were actually on screen with Sam Neill and Laura Dern. And it marked the birth of computer-generated special effects on a large scale. Now, other movies had used computers to create great illusions, but only for one or two scenes. And Jurassic Park's Oscar for Best Visual Effects was just a no-brainer. So the movie overtook E.T. as the highest-grossing movie ever, almost reaching $1 billion in worldwide ticket sales in its first theatrical release. And many thought it would take more than a decade for a movie to ever reach those heights, but James Cameron proved everyone wrong four years later when Titanic defied expectations and became the first movie to break $1 billion in the first theatrical run. Jurassic Park would eventually go over $1 billion with its 20th anniversary release in 2013. So for all the good things that Jurassic Park did for the team behind the camera, the film didn't really seem to help advance the careers of many of the actors. I mean, Jeff Goldblum was already a movie star when Jurassic Park came out, and Laura Dern was doing well before this, but they never really seemed to have much momentum beyond the sequels to Jurassic Park. Of course, we know Laura Dern would finally get her Oscar. Jeff Goldblum kind of just hid into obscurity for a while. Sam Neill was delivering a one-two punch in the theaters that year with a role as the scorned husband in The Piano, but he never got a role after that that would really give him the kind of stardom I think he really deserved. I thought he had an opportunity when he played opposite Meryl Streep in A Cry in the Dark in 1988, but I don't get the impression he wanted to be a big Hollywood star. And I think that's why he tried to get out of doing more Jurassic Park movies, eventually agreeing to do the third movie. And I hear he's also in the new upcoming third Jurassic World movie. So as for those two kids in the movie, Ariana Richards and Joseph Mazzello, they didn't really launch into great child acting careers. Richards did more movies, but she's now working toward being known as a painter. And Mazzello is still working in Hollywood, and I was really shocked to see him in Bohemian Rhapsody using a British accent as one of the members of Queen. And I forgot to mention him in the episode I did on Presumed Innocent, which was his film debut as a victim of child abuse in a couple of flashback scenes. And as for John Williams, well, it was just the beginning of a very, very busy year with almost no time off planned. 
He spent January, February, and March working on Jurassic Park. Then he took April to plan out his summer with the Boston Pops. And this would be his final summer with the orchestra, and the stint would include some trips to perform in Asia in addition to their normal concerts in Boston. After all that was done, it would be time to watch Schindler's List and get that music ready. I'm really excited to be talking about that monumental score in the next episode. Well, David, it's been a joy to talk with you about Jurassic Park. I am so enamored with the score, as you've discovered, and some of the things you brought up made me love it even more. So thank you very much for that. Well, likewise, Jeff, and and thank you for the opportunity to talk about such a great and multifaceted score. I look forward to continuing to follow the baton as you take us through the 90s and into the new millennium. Onward bound. So reach out to me via email, everybody, at jeffswim at aol.com or via Twitter at the handle jeffswim. Please also consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and posting comments on the Podbean app. Looking forward to having you join me on the next episode. And until then, the baton is down. <laughs>